quick warning before we jump into this episode with Judy Atkinson. Although this episode is focused around deep listening, in order to dive into that topic, there are a very small number of occasions where we discuss traumatic events, some of which are sexual in nature. Although no details are given in our discussion, if you are listening with children in the car or you know you're sensitive to this topic, you may want to listen with caution. What does it take to truly hear somebody? And by hear somebody, I don't mean listen. I don't mean sit and pay attention to somebody. I mean hear them. And often hearing is the space between the words. It's the stories between the words. For those of you who have listened to this podcast before, you'll have heard me talk about an unhelpful belief that so many of us have around people who can and cannot be influential. And this belief is that only the extroverts, the ones who are completely at home in front of people whose voices don't wobble when they speak, whose knees don't shake, those people, only those people can really create change. Now, certainly owning your own voice on stage or in a meeting is a vital component of becoming an authority in your space. However, it is not the only thing. In this episode, we're going to turn down the volume just a little and we're going to go into a space of deep listening. Now, this is certainly a skill that I've had to practice and practice again just to be able to do this podcast. And there are still moments after interviewing someone where I sit back and reflect and I think, I don't believe I left enough space there for what was really, for the magic really was to come out. And in those moments, the most influential I can be is to just shut up and listen. So you would have all been in the company of someone who's mastered that skill. It's magnetic when someone truly shuts down their own inner voice, their own ego, the chatter, and focuses single-mindedly on you, on your story, on your truth. It's often very hard not to completely fall in love with those people. You walk away feeling seen, you, you bear things to them that perhaps you've barely allowed yourself to acknowledge until that moment. Now imagine that skill being applied, not in a dinner party or in a boardroom, but in communities with men and women who have experienced real trauma, who have been forcibly removed from their homes, alienated from their culture, and ripped often from their families. That's where my next guest started her journey, working with the disenfranchised, the overlooked, those who've been deeply abused, and that the only way to communicate their suffering was often through violence, because nobody had actually taken the time or the capacity to listen. So she started out studying violence as a form of communication, which, when I learned that about my next guest, just intrigued me, that violence could be a form of language. I'd never considered it to be a language before. And once you shift that, once you shift that mind frame, then if violence is a language, the answer is how well do we listen? My name is Julie Masters and welcome to Inside Influence, the podcast where it's my job to talk to interesting and influential people all around the world about what it actually takes to create change, a movement, gain traction behind an idea in an industry, stand out above the noise and then we look at those lessons and we break them down so that you can begin to use them in your own lives and in, let's face it, in my own life and on our own journeys of influence. This week's guest is Judy Atkinson, and it's safe to say you'll probably no doubt hear this in my voice as I'm talking to her. I am in quiet awe of this woman. Judy is an expert in understanding healing and recovery from trauma in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. At the core of her approach to healing is her focus on listening. She understands that in order to heal, the stories behind the trauma must first be heard. Because of the skills, she is an integral part of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Women's Task Force on Violence Report for the Queensland Government. She's an author, a retired lecturer, a TED speaker, and she continues to receive humanitarian and academic awards for her transformational work, including the 2011 Fritz Redlich, I'm hoping I've said that right, Memorial Award for Human Rights and Mental Health from Harvard University. I first saw Judy speak at TED in Sydney on the main stage last year. And as soon as she walked on stage, you know, sometimes you just know, and she walked on stage with this quiet dignity and gravity. But it's that essence that she applies to listening that I think if we can take it and use it within our own lives, how we listen to other people, how we listen to ourselves, and if we can master it there, 
then we can use that same power to give us gravity when we actually start speaking. In this conversation, which by the way happened in a car park in 40 degree heat in Lismore in a very hot vehicle that I had borrowed the day after Boxing Day to be able to get to this interview, I was so determined to make it happen. Judy sat through this interview, sweat dripping down her face. And I kept asking, do you want to take a break? Do you want to get out? Do you want to go for a walk? And she kept saying, no, this conversation is too important. So what did we talk about? We talked about um, listening deeply. We talked about how to get yourself in a mind space to absorb someone else's story. We talked about how if you're in that mindset, how do you stay there? You know, those moments where you think you're going to listen to somebody or hear them and then they say something and it just knocks you out into defense or into story or into somewhere else and you're no longer present. So once we're in that mindset, how do we stay there for somebody? How do you ensure you're creating a safe space for the other person to actually open up? What do you do if you don't necessarily like or feel comfortable or feel qualified to deal with what's next, which I don't know for anybody else, but that's probably a fear of mine when it goes into being in comfortable conversations. What if this goes to a place where I just do not know how to handle it from here? And then what do you do? What do you do with the information that you've got? How do you listen to yourself in a way that keeps you healthy? So all of this and more, this is a really one-of-a-kind conversation with a one-of-a-kind woman who has more of a meaningful impact on the lives of Australians than anybody I have ever met and whose message outside of this half of the planet has the potential to make the kind of change that I think would dwarf many other disciplines. So please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Judy Atkinson. Welcome to the podcast, Judy Atkinson. I'm really pleased to be here. It's such a pleasure. We are sat in a car park in Lismore, <laughs> in Lismore, making this interview happen. So thank you. I really appreciate you making the time. Oh, I'm just happy to be talking to somebody who may want to listen. Well, I very much, I very much want to listen. So I'm going to start this interview the way that I start all interviews, which is to ask you whether you consider yourself to be an introvert or an extrovert. And the reason I ask this is because there's often the myth that people can't create change or be heard unless they are an extrovert. So I'm just curious. I've just thought about this a lot in the last week or so. And I know that I'm an introvert. I love being by myself. I love being able to read, to be able to think. I also love sitting and listening to people as they open my world to their stories. The extrovert part of me is being willing to walk in and give a talk somewhere. I do a lot of keynote presentations and I think I have something to say now. I don't think it's the end of the world uh, insofar as telling stories to draw people's attention to what needs to be done, but I am an introvert. Well, I mean, I've seen you present and you are incredibly impactful, I think, because of that, actually which is interesting. I think that you're, you bring a quietness and a gravity to the stage that is itself compelling. Like that's what makes it compelling. The way that you hold the space without sound, which I, I think we'll, we'll get into more with when it comes to listening. Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to talk specifically about listening and, and what led you to the conclusions that you've come to about its practice and its necessity, but that's not where you started. And I, I, I want to start there. You started the journey by studying how we communicate through violence. Mm. So what, what does that mean? Tell me what that means. Perhaps I will start with a story then. I was working in Cape York for the Aboriginal Coordinating Council back in the 1980s, mid to late 1980s, and I was in a community in Cape York and we were sitting together, the 28 uh, chair and deputy chair of the 14 councils, at 10 o'clock that morning, we had to make a decision on how we were going to spend $23 million of Commonwealth housing money. But we had no data. We had no, uh, no we didn't know the number of people who lived in the communities like Palm Island, Cherbourg, 
Warabinda, Yarraba, the Cape communities. Uh, we didn't know how many houses were in community, so we were at a disadvantage, but we had 10 minutes to put out how they were going to spend that money, the council itself. And there were uh, local people at that meeting, I won't name the community, and at lunchtime, one of them, an elder, came over to me and asked if she could talk to me. And I said, sure, aren't you know, when and where? And that night we sat under a mango tree. And she told me that the week previously, a five-year-old child had been raped and nobody would do anything. And I can remember it, this incident changed my life because I went back to the 27 and one men and one woman on the Aboriginal Coordinating Council and asked if I could focus on that. And I remember at that time we had the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody as well. So as I, uh, I spoke to her more, I listened to more, um, and I'm an activist, I like to do things, I realised that the people who should be doing stuff, that's the government agencies, the police, uh, the child protection, it was um, community services in those days, the health departments were not listening. And I went to them, and the answer was, well, it's cultural, isn't it? Now, my response to that was, wait a minute, an elder has just asked me to do something. I now have, from the 28 chair and deputy chair of the Aboriginal Coordinating Council, a, a determination, a push to do something about this. So they're listening. They want something done. Why is it that the people who were employed couldn't? do something. And I then started to walk through this maze of understanding that, hey, more women had been killed in Queensland, more Aboriginal women in domestic violence and all the deaths in custody. But we weren't listening to that. We were listening to the political push on deaths in cells in custody. So I learned that if I wanted to really know something, I would have to do a lot of walking and then sit and listen. And I did that at every level from both state government into the federal government, but more particularly on the ground. And then I started my PhD, which is really what she taught me. The question was, what is this violence? It's not something I'd grown up with as an Aboriginal woman. I'd never seen it. I'd never seen men behaving like this on kids, on women. But it was certainly there now. As I listened, I learned to listen more deeply, not just with the ears, but to see what the body was telling me. And so tell me a little bit more about that. What the body was telling you, because there's different forms of. There's a difference between, as I as I'm listening to you, there's a difference between listening and being heard, mm. and almost listening is just listening to the words. To for someone to feel truly heard, there's so many levels of listening there, and mm. listening to the body is one of those. So. Again, walking down a street in Rockhampton, seeing an Aboriginal woman walking towards me and knowing in her body that she was in real distress. There was no physical example of her distress, but the way she was walking, the look on her face. And so just saying to her, Sister, do you want to talk for a while? I need to sit down. And just sitting with her and allowing her finally to start to talk. So I was responding to what I could feel in her body. Now, this by this time I was... Um, halfway through my PhD, so I had been listening a lot and I was able to see um, into the pain that her body was carrying. And she just sat there, you know, for 30 minutes she just sat there and talked. And it was the most incredibly tragic story, but a story that as she came out of it, it was like a... And I've had this co this kind of comment over and over again. Oh, nobody's listened to me like that before. Thank you. And then just moving on and years later I meet her again and she says do you remember me and I'm looking at her she's different she's changed and I say oh when and she says oh you you stopped me in Fitzroy in, in, in Fitzroy Street in Rockhampton and said do you want to do you need to sit down and have a yarn and it changed my life she said you listened for the first time somebody heard me I have heard you, I've heard you say that in order to heal, the stories behind the trauma must be heard, which is essentially what we're, what you're talking about here as well, which yes. is there are generations and generations of stories yeah. until they're all heard, until they're all given some form of platform, air, mm. space, mm -hmm. then the, the trauma, the trauma cannot be healed. And I think that's an uncomfortable truth because oh, yes. what a lot of us hope for with our own stories as much, I mean, you've got the stories that we own, our own anger, our own stories, 
and then you've got the the anger and stories of a family and then you've got a community and then you've got a nation. And I think we all hope that if we don't talk about it, if we don't mention it, we don't look at it, we'll all just move on and just get over it. Can I just respond to that? Because um, there's two layers of this. First of all, the stories have to be heard, but they don't have to be verbally spoken. It may be unsafe. So if, if you're working in healing, it may be that you encourage people to put on a theatre and you watch the young people and you watch this theatre and you think, oh my God, is that the stories they're holding? Or you get them to do dance. And the dancing moves the, the pain out of the body. Uh, you get them to do art. I, I do four weeks every six months in Alice Springs Prison. And the art is fabulous after we've done their lost history maps. So if we really want to understand trauma in this country, and let's just focus on Australia, or in a town, an outback town, um, or even in this place where we're sitting here, Lismore, then maybe the stories need to be told verbally as well. You, I've heard you say a number of times throughout the conversation, you've used the term holding space. Now, I, yeah. I have a sense of what that means through my own, through my own journey, but for many people they wouldn't. So can you, can you holding space can is you important. Verbalize what holding yes. space means and the importance of holding space when it comes to deep listening. Mm. Okay, so let me give you an example. This morning I woke up. I thought, woke up about five o'clock. I thought, what have I got to do today? Oh yeah, okay, I've got to be done in this at ten o'clock. Okay, I need to have a think about that. What am I going to say? Now, I didn't know what I was going to say. And what I'm talking about is kind of political in a way. But it's not. It's holding the space for these stories to come out further, more deeply. And Australia will have to, Australia as a whole, will have to respond to that. Now, we've had a Royal Commission, but it's bigger than that. It's the um, continuing impact of Australia wanting to... You know, celebrate Australia Day on the 26th of January when some people are still hurting. For me, holding the space is first emptying myself and then listening. Listening to what is happening around me, and that happened this morning. Um, as I got in the car, I was still breathing and thinking, what is it that I need to be aware of uh, to be able to speak today? Um, holding the space, I put my hands out here, is, is sitting with my hands out and knowing that what's going to come into this space is stories that I really don't want to know about or hear, but somebody has to know about them. Um, somebody has to speak to them uh, and follow through in that holding with a movement, with action. You can't just hold the space and hear stories if you don't ethically respond in some way. Okay get really kind of practical with that because I think it's one of the things that is easy to do not very well. Mm. Hold a space for somebody else and be it in your relationships, be it at work, be it with your children. It's very easy to go down the pathway, well, just tell me what happened. Tell me what happened. Give me the facts. I just want the facts. Mm. So there's a difference, isn't there, when you're, yes. when you're holding a space for somebody can you give me some practical tools of, of how, how do I do that? If there's a space that I want to hold for somebody else, I want to be able to hear them. I have a genuine desire to hear somebody deeply. Mm. How do I go about, A, creating the space and then holding it when I'm there? Mm. So the beginning, as I said, empty yourself. And then as you come into the energy space of the other, try to feel, um, to, if you have to say something, to open a conversation or whether the conversation is going to to move and just be aware of where it's moving and open uh, in that holding also open yourselves yourself to being inquisitive being curious and sometimes in the most deepest distressed painful story what triggers you is how did that person survive tell me about that what did you do then and it may be that's the question that may take you into a deeper so my question is, what do we do now um, with all of the stories that are starting to come out? They won't not come out. Um, it's about you. 
not having an ego and thinking you're better than the other. Part of my critique, and, and you know, I was in a university for quite a long time, is how we, we think we've got to put uh, expertise into the other. They're the experts. They can do it, whether they're psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors or whatever, um, social workers included. But sometimes the answers are there as we are present in that place. Now, don't get me wrong, sometimes holding that space can be so big and you've heard things that you really don't want to hear that you have to pull back a bit. And, you know, I mean, I've done this. I've just said, can we just, just sit for a while? I just need to sit for a while. Um, you've told me some really, really painful things in the... TED Talk, I, I talk about the young man who was full of anger. He'd done three prison terms and uh, he had good reason to be angry and it was always on white males. Um, so what are we going to do the anger stuff? And he surprised me when he went in and said, oh, I don't feel the anger now. We were going to do some deep anger work. And I said, what is it? And he said, grief. That was the most amazing gift because I hadn't actually articulated as an academic that under anger is always grief. And I've heard you say that, always grief. Mm. Under anger there is always grief. And there's something very pivotal in that because Mm. it's easy to walk through the world Mm. going, you know, this person's angry, that community's angry. Mm. It's very easy to focus on the anger, Anger. deal with that, which is actually what the prison system is. Yes. It's what every fight's about. Yes. We've, we're focusing on the anger, dealing with the anger yeah. or, or moving the anger to one side because that person is by definition just angry. Yeah. But what you're saying is that actually ignore the anger, as, contain it, take care contain of it. Contain the anger so it doesn't become violent. But deal with what's underneath violence. the anger, which is always grief. Mm. And when you think about it like that, there's something that shifts. Yeah. And I'm thinking specifically in, in my relationships – you know, when you focus on some, the fact that somebody's angry, you become, mm. I become defensive and you start dealing with the, the scream. But if you think about the fact that actually there's, there's always grief there, mm. then suddenly your compassion kicks in and it's a whole different place to come from. And grief is a massive place. Anger actually is just an emotion, but it's a doing place for in the you know the, the lower part of the brain, the reptilian brain. Fight, fight, flee, freeze. Um, the freeze is the dangerous place. The fight, flight's good. Um, so working with anger can be very powerful. Um, and every time I've worked with anger in a very safe way, where people are allowed to express express that anger, not get out on the streets and smash up on other people or, you know, I've had people who say, you know, I just want to go out and and get the cops to have a fight with me. I just wanted to fight them. And I say, did you win? What did you get out of it? I just end up down in the clink in the the watch house. I said, so you didn't get anything out of it, hey? So let's move down into what's under it. Let's find what's under it. And as we move into the grief, it's massive. There's layers of grief. I think one of the things that stops us, deep listening, making the space, holding the space, creating the opportunity, asking the questions, is that we are fearful, myself included, we are fearful of what will come back. Oh, yes. And that there will be a depth and a pain and a responsibility that comes with those stories that we're not sure that we can hold. We, we don't have the skills to hold, the time to hold, the bandwidth to hold, or the, the ability, the emotional ability to be able to hold something like that. And so we don't ask. So how do we, how do we, you get around that? What if you've, you've got a family member that you want to be more connected to and you want to ask the questions, but you're not sure you can handle what's going to come back? I can't, I can only speak for me. I think that there is an incredible gift that happens when finally a person in your family, an older person in your family, is able to talk and tell stories um, that allows you to see them more deeply. So my father, for the last five years of his life, was primarily bedridden. But uh, one of the uh, stories I'd like to share is coming back from Canberra. I was enrolled in stuff at the ANU and in the University of Canberra. I was in my 
mid-40s, I'd come down from PNG with my, my husband. And he sits on the veranda with me. And he says, so you're studying them Aborigines, hey, Jude? And I went, well, I guess kind of, Dad. I hadn't thought of it in those words, but I am studying uh, Aboriginal people and politics, you know, uh, the history of Aboriginal nations, all sorts of things. And he says, you won't find any down here now, Jude. They're all gone. You'll have to go right up north. And I stopped. And I remember kind of standing with my back to him for a while because I could feel something that was vibrating in him. And then I turned around and said, well, who do you think you are then, Dad? And he said to me, I'm just a bit of a darkie. I'm nothing, Jude. Nobody. That opened a major space for me because then I took more time to listen to him and I found out that in, you know, like he was running up horses for the First World War and getting them shipped out of Curtis Island. Um, he then applied to work on the railways and worked alongside grown men by the time he was 13 and was really proud of it. Then he became a blacksmith and, and worked, you know, really hard. But part of what I heard, because he, um, I have one thing that he's written. It was a letter to my mother when he was courting her. She was, um, her parents were born in Germany, were orphaned and sent out to Australia to after they were released from the orphanage. And I realised that in fact there was such a lot of pain in him, but he had worked all his life to overcome that. To, and, and he didn't speak about it until the end. And then with that, it opened him talking to my mother and she wrote down these amazing stories of his life. Um, and part of it is, you know, the real uh, pride he, he felt when he lined up against these grown men and was selected to work on the railways when he was 13 years of age. If we aren't shocked by the stories... And we hold the space and we allow the truth as that person sees it to come out. We have the chance to reconstruct stories so that um, something may have happened. And I'm thinking now of a young girl I know, a young non-Aboriginal girl I know who was sexually assaulted by in a school and reported it to the police, a court case handled really badly the perpetrator was found not guilty. But that young girl, who was just on 10 at the time, moved with her parents to another place and she saw a sign up for dancing and she asked if she could dance. Has now in that time, since that first happened over five years, um, is dancing so beautifully that she's been shortlisted to become whatever they do in dance with uh, the uh, the ballet, uh, whatever it's called, in, in, in Moscow. Oh, in, wow. I know. Yeah, I mean, when you said, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, she used all... She danced her anger out on the stage. I watched her. Isn't that amazing that she intuitively somewhere... Yes. Somewhere in her she knew... How to heal herself. That's yeah. an, an And her parents gift. supported that, even in their woundedness, because they were wounded. They lost faith in the system. And this girl has not been back to a, a you know, a, a proper school since then. She has done distance ed, but she's put everything into the dance, exquisite, beautiful. You find that and then you work with that. You know, you build on it. What is it? Mm, the... You also make me thinking about making me think about interviewing. Mm. One of the beautiful things that I have seen people do, especially with family members that mm. they maybe don't feel very connected to, or there's something there mm. that needs to be healed, or for whatever reason they want to get closer to that person. Mm. And especially as people get older. Yeah. But to do this, mm. to interview somebody. I know from my own experiences with this podcast and interviewing people, there is a space as soon as it is on record. Mm. And you sit with, in your curiosity with somebody, mm. incredible conversations that are very hard to get to otherwise Yeah, start coming out. So even to sit and interview somebody and say, 
you know, tell me about your life. What was that like? Mm. Because to interview somebody, you automatically go into the mode of observer. Mm. You Very little commentary. You're just listening. You're listening yeah. for your next question. Mm. It's a very different place to come to. Mm. I, wanted to. I wanted to ask you about another story, actually. I remember you mentioning a pivotal moment for you, which was a woman in a doctor's surgery. Mm. Can, you, can you just tell that story? Because I've got a few questions about yeah. it. I'd act, I was actually back in uh, central Queensland in Rockhampton doing my PhD and towards the end of it, uh, central Queensland University was interested in putting some stuff into their health courses. So I was located in the university and I got this call from this doctor and my initial response was to see if I could get one of the students to go down and nobody was around so I thought, well, I will. And there were a number of things that I hadn't talked about previously but the woman was sitting in the doctor's surgery and he was clearly agitated and distressed and was not able to respond to her. Um, so he called you and basically said, I don't know what to do with this lady. Yeah, and he walked out and left me in the surgery with her. Um, now, he did know me, so he knew how to make a phone call. Um, my sense as I sat and looked at her and, and I could see as I came in that there were two young uh, girls at seven and nine sitting against the wall, just watching her. But she was just rigid, just sitting there, not engaging at all. So I was curious because I'd never seen her before in town. You generally know most Aboriginal people around. And so I needed not to sit on his chair and be... I needed to sit at her feet, which is what I did. And I just put my hand gently against her foot and then said, I'm just putting my hand here. I hope you don't mind. I just want to feel you, feel your foot, so that I know that I'm here with you and you know I'm here with you too. And there was a movement in her. She acknowledged me, but before she wasn't even acknowledging him. She knew how to get to the doctor's surgery. It was just opposite near the police sta the um, railway station. Um, and so I just started to gently ask some questions like, as before, uh, so I haven't seen you in town before. If you just come here. And I was guessing, I was trying to find a way in. Um, and she shook her head. She, she doesn't come from here. So how did you get here? Did you come by train? Which was another guess. Um, and she nodded. And then I asked her a, a, a question that she would have to answer. So where have you come from? And then she told me that she'd come from Cairns. And she started to fill that in. It was me trying to find a way for her to respond to me beyond what was in her body, which was a rigidity. She had dissociated. I actually like the term disassociated, dissociated. Um, she needed to come uh, back to that room for that little while so we could talk. And once I got into some of the questions that, you know, like... So you come from Cairns, were you in Cairns? Yarrabah, ah, oh, I know Yarrabah, right. So, and it just started to flow. It was just an amazing thing. She just started to talk. And I was aware that I was crying, but I couldn't stop because I'd never heard such a, an incredibly tragic story. Um, she had seven children. She'd been uh, removed as a child. She... Uh, got together with the first man who showed her any kind of kindness, but he was a brutal man who felt, white man who felt that he could own her. And she had seven children to him. And so there was an outcome on that. Um, to me, it was just holding that space with a curious mind trying to just find a bit more. You know, what? what is this story? Um, how do I understand this story more? And truly, she did her own work. She... Um, she talked, she was still in that kind of almost rigid but, but trans state, didn't try to move with any energy as she told this incredible story of, you know, one son had suicided in, in Mount Isa, another son was in jail about to suicide, she'd lost one daughter from domestic violence and then she just buried the other daughter from domestic violence and there, there was two, two, two girls here. And then she, as she came out of it, and I was literally crying I didn't know how to respond. She just shook herself and then looked at me and said, oh, 
Thank you. I've never told that story to anybody before. Thank you for listening. And that then, she was there present. She was Previous to that, she was in a dissociated state. Just the story was just flowing. When she actually shook herself and said thank you, she actually engaged with me. And then I was able to start to talk to her about, well, what do we need to do now? You're, you've interrupted your, road, your train trip down to Redfern. So we need to get you a place. And I was able to make some calls to get um, the Aboriginal Medical Service to support her. There's, there's two things that immediately struck me mm. when I first heard that story. One of it is you, you bent down and touched her foot. Mm. And it reminded me of a time in my life when I had some, some fairly significant grief. Mm. And I showed up at a friend's house, a friend's studio. She's an artist. She's a mosaic artist. Incredible. And I showed up her studio. I don't know why instinct just, I literally got in my car and I just went there. Instinct took me there. And I showed up at her studio and she had students there. And she took one look at me and she said, where does your, she didn't, she said nothing else other than where does your body need to be right now? Yeah. Good story. And. Good question. Yeah. Great question. And I remember being a little shocked at the question, but the answer was so clear. I said, I need to be on the floor. And she said, right, get on the floor. And she asked all of her students to leave or just go get a coffee. And she lay on that floor with me, just held me and lay on the floor with me for about 15 minutes. But it was enough. It was enough. And the the power of being met where you're at. That's it. That somebody cares enough or is interested enough to find you where you're at, not ask you to be anywhere else and meet you there. I will meet you there. And she asked the question, mm. where does your body need to be? Yeah. Not where do you need to be, but the body is the the holder of the story. She, mm. Wow, that's a beautiful story. The, the other thing that struck me is, um, again, around holding space. Mm. You know, you didn't interrupt her, and I think that that's something that we can learn a lot about and especially with, you know, the current landscape with man-interrupting or whatever they're calling it now, to not interrupt somebody, to just let it go. And then even when it feels like they're done, to keep inviting, you know, is there anything else? Is there anything else that you feel like you need to say? Is there anything else about this story that feels like it needs to be heard? And just keep inviting until the well runs dry. And that is difficult to do because we are naturally impatient creatures. Yes. Yeah. We want to get it over with quickly. And we also want to get to the point where I can give you the answer. Yeah, yeah. Okay, get the story done because I know what you should do. Mm. Yeah. Again, um, Stan Groff said, um, and so does um, Bruce Perry in his own way, that in fact people know the answers to what they need to do. They just have to be given a time to be within it and and find where they need to go and what they need to do. The body and... and, um, just kind of forgotten his name um, from Harvard University. Uh, he says uh, the body uh, has holds all the stories, but the, the the body is self-healing. We are self-healing entities, um, and so so long as we can hear ourselves, and there's somebody to witness. I think the witness is an important one. Um, yeah. So your friend witnessed mm. um, to hold and not help. Yeah. It's a difficult line. Mm difficult line to walk. You also said something, again, which I found really helpful and poignant at the time. You were talking about somebody that you were working with that was um, having difficulty processing his own grief. Mm. And rather than coming at it front ways, rather than coming at it, you know, how can I help you? Which is how we tend to approach people often. Mm. Tell me how I can help you. Then I just want to, it's that action orientation again, which I bring it up because it's something that I suffer mm. from. How can, how can I help you? Just tell me, I'll fix it and let's get it done. Instead, you came at it from another direction mm. and you said, can you help me? Understand. Can mm. you help me? And there's something that happens in us when someone says, can you help me, where we mm. suddenly were able to come to the party mm. a lot more. Yeah, how did you survive that? Wow, so you did that as a child, you did that. Wow, that's so powerful. Um 
I found the lost history map I do in Alice Springs Prison with the women really powerful. In the four weeks, I generally had it in, I used to have it in the third week, and I've now brought it into the end of the first week and into through the second week. And what I do is we do this work, and obviously they're starting to think, and I sit with them as they make their map, and then I open a space for them to paint. And then as they're painting, I will move from one to another and sit beside them. I might not say anything, or I might say, just tell me about that painting. That's uh, I, I don't say that's really great, powerful or anything like that. I'll say, tell me about that story, and then I'll hesitate and say, wow, you know, that's really, mm, and ask them. And there was one young woman who I met nearly three years ago there, and she was full of anger, um, and she had reason to be. And with the canvases, I watched her over two, over four weeks, and she had this little tiny canvas, and she would just cover it in teardrops. And I would think, this is exquisite, because it had a pattern in it. And then she'd paint over it. And I think, what? And she painted over it ten times. And I was fascinated, actually. I talked to people from Humanity United about that. I thought... Uh, I wasn't going to ask her what was happening at that stage because she was one of the first times I went over to do this work. Anyway, she was there the last time I was there. And she painted, she set up a canvas that was like a, a window pane of four panes. And I watched her painting each of the window panes in different um, images. Uh, it was all dots or, or uh, teardrops or but absolutely exquisite with real deep colors and I just I would sit with her um, and then towards the end of it I said you know this is this is really really beautiful can you tell me what these all mean and she put her hand on the first one and she said excited that we're going to be working together again and the second one so this is the bottom one on the left and then up above that was um, kind of anxious. I'm starting to feel really, I was starting to feel really anxious when I painted that. And then the next one over here, I was just really, really angry. I was full of anger. And then the bottom one was, I feel peaceful. So it was like this thing. Now you would never have picked it up if you, it's not a painting, you know. Um, but absolutely, totally exquisite. I, I've decided I want to use that in, I'm going to rewrite the package and use that in the front cover of the manual. Because getting people to name feelings is so difficult if the only feeling they've ever had is anger, rage. And the anger moves so quickly into the action of violence that they that it can't even name anger and sit with it and go, oh, I'm feeling angry. I, I need to say something here. It's like anger, whap. Mm. Um, Cause and effect feelings. quickly. Feelings. And also as, as parents teaching our children yeah. to have an emotional vocabulary. Yes. To be able to pick an emotion, mm. name it. And where is it in your body? Reduce its power. Ah, where is it in, its, in yeah, your body? That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. So the anger can be in different parts of the body and it, you know, and it may be here in the fist or it may be in the feet or it mm. may be, if it's here, that's a, a powerful place because it's generating... In the belly. Yeah, in the, through the belly button. And then it moves up into here and into the head. But it gives you so much more agency. Yeah. To be able to name it, to be able to say yeah. where it is in your body, suddenly you have ownership over it, yeah. control over it. Yeah. And you are... You are naming it rather than it naming you, if that makes sense. So finally, I, I, I want to get on to one final aspect of, of yeah. listening, which is to listen to yourself. You know, we've talked about listening to others. Yeah. We've talked about listening to communities. Um, we've talked about listening to our children. I want to talk about listening to ourselves. You said before you quoted somebody saying, if I went into that grief, I would split into a thousand pieces mm. and you would never be able to put me back mm. together. And I think that there are a lot of people like that, that can relate yeah. to that sensation in their bodies of it being a black hole of which they would mm. never come out mm. of. So how, how do you listen to yourself in a way that enables you to move through things as they happen? And also, if you have that feeling that there's a big black hole there, that you would never survive. 
For me personally, I, I don't think anybody should be working in the field, whether they're uh, doctors, lawyers, um, social workers, teachers, whatever, unless they can listen to themselves. Now, let me just put it for a doctor. It may be that uh, they've got a time frame, they've got to write a script and something like that. But they need to know whether they're just trying to write the script to get the person out of the office or whether they're actually listening. There is a doctor in this town who listened, finally listened when my husband was really sick, going to different doctors. And within half an hour of her going to him, she'd sent him somewhere where within an hour we had the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. He died some weeks later. So she listened. And the other doctors were just presuming stuff. Um, listening, I think it is the most important thing that we can do is to know ourselves. We cannot do any other work unless we know ourselves and know why we're doing something. So I'm going to go back to you know the business world or the corporate world or whatever. You know, I mean, there are some good people out there doing some good work and they've made a choice to be in that kind of workforce. Um, there's a lot of psychologists, social workers who just want to fix somebody without actually listening. And that's a powerful place. It's a, not a good place because the power over is when I want to fix you. Not when I want to be there so that you can find the way where you can fix yourself. So listening to yourself is to know that. So what happens when somebody is anxious or pushy or angry with me and I respond in an angry way or a pushy way? Um, yeah, I'm going to fix them up. Or, yeah, it's a power over place. But we have to work from within the power within which means that we want to be there for the other so they can become powerful within themselves is there a practice is there i mean obviously meditation would seem to be an obvious thing but is there a daily practice of being able to listen yeah. to yourself the big thing at the moment around the world is this mindfulness stuff and it comes out of you know different kinds of tibetan and other uh i want to go back to uh indigenous cultures, however, because, you know, um, when I first was given um, Miriam Rose Angama's words, didiri or da didi, um, in her language, um, it spoke to me. It allowed me to so slow down. Is... Uh, inner deep listening and quiet still awareness. And so that's the, that particular it's, Aboriginal language's version of yes. listening, word yeah. for listening deeply. That's right. Okay. And in this country here, in Bajalang country, it's Ghana. So in every Aboriginal language, there are words that we can use for how do we really listen, not just to ourselves, but to the group around us and to the country. Country is, is powerful within us as well. Um, and in learning to listen, and this is the mindfulness stuff that the world is all enamored with at the moment, um, we are exposed within ourselves to the things that we need to know about ourselves. And it, implicit in all of that, is the belief system, or based on experience for you, mm. the belief system that we all hold stories. Yep. We all hold stories mm. that we have written. We have sto hold, we hold stories that were written for us in simply in terms of even being parented. Mm. And if you look at epigenetics, we hold stories that have come I generations guess. before. And it's not until we can hear those stories, mm. either he hear our own or hear somebody else's, mm. that we get to rewrite them. And that's the only way to rewrite them. I like the rewriting thing because I think all of this work is about allowing people to rewrite their stories in the way they need to for themselves. Mm. And journaling is also a powerful way, I have found, a powerful way mm. of listening to your own stories. Yeah. Especially if you don't censor as you write, you get mm. a really interesting yeah. insight into the stories that you're mm. holding. I've done a lot of writing and a lot of journey journaling and I'm about to go in and do some more writing another book. Um, but what I'm more interested in people who don't have the capacity to write but who still have stories. And uh, there's a lot of young people I've met who um, don't have the capacity to write their stories down but ask them to put a play on and the story comes. Ask them to dance something out. It comes. Um, yeah, so. Funny you... I think a quote from Miriam Rose, who you just mentioned, mm. you said, Dididi is the Aboriginal gift to this nation. Yep. So to listen, to listen deeply mm. is the Aboriginal gift to this mm. nation. So what, given this time and place and in history, what should we be listening for? 
from where I am at the moment and what I know that is happening in some parts of New South Wales and other parts of Australia, um, Australians generally need to know and understand that the frontier may have happened way back then and there were atrocities that happened. And Aboriginal people survived. They survived in whichever way they could. But even today, some of those stories are, study, are still coming out and some of that behaviour is still happening. So what should Australia do? It needs to know that just because some of these horrible stories are coming out of generational abuse uh, and little kids are acting out, that's not Aboriginal culture. There's a deeper culture there that says we can heal together. And Miriam Rose gives this invitation. We know our white brothers and sisters carry their own particular burdens. If they let us come to them, if we sit together, we can heal those stories, that burdens. We can help. Okay, this is my, my last question. It's the question I usually close with. Mm. And that is if I could give to you, which you've had on a number of occasions already, but if I could give to you a stage... And I could give you a microphone and in front of you I could put every single person that you would ever want to influence. What's the one thing, the one thing that you would want them to know? That in spite of the fear within us about what might come out, if we truly deeply listen to the truth of our kids and their parents and their grandparents, and I'm not talking about here, I'm talking about the world, you know, the way that we've created war zones um, and we've gone out and bombed people. But if we truly listen to this pain, it brings responsibility to act. Once we know things, we cannot not pick up that responsibility to act. And that's what worries me about the world, you know. We seem to think that the answer is always to go to war and it's not. Um, we should be building peacekeeping forces, really good peacekeeping forces instead of yeah, in every part of the world. That would, that's what I would say. You've got to act. Once you know the truth, you've got to act. Judy Atkinson, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure and a privilege. And if you could see us both now, we are sat in a very hot car, sweating, <laughs> and you rode it out with me, so thank you. No, thank you. You got me to think more deeply. Thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and found lots of useful insights and ideas for growing your influence. Thanks, as always, to our producer and the main brain behind the Inside Influence podcast, Lauren Kelly. In the words of Jerry Maguire, you complete me. You can find out a little bit more about me and the work that I do by jumping on my website, juliemasters.com, or by following me on Instagram, jules.masters. If you did enjoy the show, then we would love you to share this podcast and leave us a review on iTunes. And don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an interview.